your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When it comes to praying for God's will, for many of us, it's about knowing what the will of God is for the immediate and specific situations that we're facing in our life in the present. We want to know things, we want to know how we can know God's will in this or that particular circumstance as we are engaged in that, this or that particular circumstance. How do I know what God's will is when I'm faced with a big decision in life? <clears throat> Lord, is it your will that I should date this person? Or, Lord, how can I know if it's your will that I marry the person that I'm with? Or, Lord, I've been offered two jobs and I don't know which one to take. Which is your will? I don't know how to, how to figure out your will in this. Should I move? Should I go to university? Lord, should I give my life to the mission field or to the ministry? <clears throat> Lord, what is your will for my life? We tend to, to, to understand and to speak about God's will in those types of ways, but let me just tell you that this way of understanding and this way of praying for God's will is actually a, a, a more modern development. It's a rather recent obsession. Because in the past, Christians had a, generally a larger grasp of biblical knowledge. They studied God's word, filling their minds with godly principles for life, petitioning the Lord in prayer, striving to live a life, live their lives in a God-glorifying way, and they kept moving forward in trust. Moving forward in trust. So as long as the job offer came in and it was for a position that didn't violate any of God's commandments, as long as the possible spouse was a fellow believer who themselves were also striving for godliness, keep moving. And God will either halt things or he will let them proceed. This is evidenced in scripture, we see this. In the ministry of the Apostle Paul, if you remember, who while he was on his missionary journeys in Acts chapter 16, we read this, he went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and so they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Now that seems like a, a relatively benign type of texts, right? I tried to go here, I couldn't go there, and then so then I tried to go here, but I couldn't go there too, and, and then we went down to Troas instead. See, Paul devoted his entire life to proclaiming the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in every place that he could, so he simply went. He kept moving forward, and when the Lord wanted Paul to go in a different direction, guess what? The Lord made that happen, And when the Lord wanted Paul to go here, that's where Paul went. And when the Lord wanted to go there, that's where Paul went. As we just read, the Spirit forbade Paul and Silas to speak and proclaim the Word of God in Asia. We don't know why, right? Sometimes the Lord doesn't reveal why that's the case. Perhaps the Lord had someone else that who's better suited to preaching the gospel in Asia. 
someone better suited to ministering in Asia's cultural climate. In fact, church history and tradition tells us that it was the Apostle Thomas who ended up heading out east and planting a church in India. But regardless, Paul and Silas could not, and therefore did not, head out to Asia. Instead, they attempted to go to Bithynia. And here also, the text tells us, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now, we aren't told, right? The text doesn't tell us how it was that the Spirit of Jesus uh, uh, kept them from going. Maybe it was the weather. Maybe it was a band of raiders on the road. Maybe it was something as simple as the camel refused to move. Come on, camel, let's go. Or who knows, maybe the camel hurt its foot on some glass or some pottery shards as it was trying to go in that direction. We don't know. The point is, as this godly pair, Paul and Silas, sought to minister for the Lord, the Lord, by his own methods, altered their course to align with his plans. And in much the same way for us, if you want to know if it's God's will for you to marry, gather all the information you can, go to God's word and learn everything you can about marriage, Make sure the, per- the person is committed to God's will, committed to the Lord. Get advice from your parents. Get advice from your true friends. Get advice from your spiritual leaders. And, uh, and go to the Lord in prayer. And then either cut the relationship off, and if you do that, then no, it wasn't God's will that you get married. And if you do get married, then it was God's will that you get married. And I've, I've actually had some people at times ask me, How do I know that the spouse that I'm with is the one that God has for me? Is it God's will that I'm with this person? Is this the one I'm supposed to be with? Well, the answer to that is quite simple. If you married them, yes. Same with your job. Same with moving. In everything, saturate your mind with God's word. Pray. Ensure that the job you take doesn't violate God's commands. Be sure that your, your, your decision to move is not to escape or leave something behind, like a bad relationship or some anger or some unforgiveness or some bitterness. But if all things are good, move forward and the Lord will open the doors and close the doors as necessary. Keep on serving the Lord and he shall forbid, halt, or open doors as he wills. And so in this sense, God does what he wills as he wills it. So again, we look at the text. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the fact that Jesus told his disciples to pray this prayer indicates that there is some sense in which God's will is not done on earth as it is in heaven. And we're going to explain that this morning. However, before we get to that, we must also make sure that we recognize that it is also true that God's will is, at all times, being realized in both heaven and earth. Now, that might be a little bit confusing, but God's will is always happening, and in another sense, the, the, the will, God's will is not happening. We're going to try and clarify that as we move on. The sovereign will of the Lord is at all times being realized in both heaven and on earth. As he decrees and ordains, everything that he decrees and ordains comes to pass. Every time. 
If the Lord says, let there be light, guess what happens? There's light. If the Lord says, King Nebuchadnezzar, even though you are the most powerful man in all of the world, living the king of the most powerful nation on the planet, king of Babylon, <clears throat> you will eat grass like an ox. You will live away from your palace. Guess what happens? King Nebuchadnezzar is driven from his palace, from the presence of men, and he eats grass like an ox. Daniel chapter 4. If the Lord promises Abraham descendants, even though Abraham and his wife are childless descendants. If the Lord promises Israel land and victory, land and victory. You see, the text tells us in Daniel chapter 4 that the Lord does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? And the Apostle Paul in the New Testament wrote in Ephesians 1 verse 11 that our God works all things according to the counsel of his will. God's will, God's counsel, his decree, his word, all of them are unchallengeable. He speaks and what he speaks comes to pass. God declares and his declarations occur. However, not all of his sovereign decrees are made clear to us, as Moses told us in Deuteronomy chapter 29. Deuteronomy 29, he said, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this, this law. Now, there it is. Did you hear it? Did you hear what Moses wrote there? The secret things belong to the Lord. But the things that are, and here's the key word, revealed, the things that are revealed, they belong to us and to our children that we may do all the words of this law. And this is what the petition, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, entails. It is the prayer of God's people that his revealed will would be obeyed on earth as it is in heaven. His revealed will would be obeyed on earth as it is in heaven. Now, did you see in, in our text this morning, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A couple of things just to note at the outset. God's revealed will is done in heaven. You see that? God's revealed will is done in heaven. In heaven, God's will is followed fully. It is followed joyfully. It is followed completely by the angelic hosts of heaven. As David wrote in Psalm 103, in Psalm 103 we read this, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you his mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. So you see, in the heavens, the angels stand at the ready at all time to do what the Lord tells them to do. And they do it joyfully. They are always ready. They always do it fully and completely. In heaven, there is a complete obedience to the Lord. And also the same is true by the saints who have died and who are in paradise with the Lord right now. As they worship Him, 
And as a result, they have found the joy, they found the peace that had constantly eluded them, that constantly eludes us in the here and now. There is no sin in heaven. There is nothing profane in heaven. No idolatry, no blasphemy. Instead, it is fullness of delight as no one, whether angel or any of our dearly departed saints, those who had believed in Jesus for salvation in this life, they enjoy the perfect will of God in heaven. God's will is done in heaven. And so when we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray that prayer as those who live here in this world. In this world, God has given us his word. He has given us his will. He has shown it to us. He has given us his commands in scripture. And for all of us who live in the world, it goes without saying, we know this. The opposition of the world to the Lord and his will and his commands is rather strenuous and consistent, right? The world, unrepentant and rebellious and stiff-necked, consistently strives against God. And not only that, but we've got Satan also prowling around, inciting rebellion and disobedience to God's word. And even, as, even in us as Christians, while our souls are regenerated, while we are new internally, we have this flesh, this unredeemed part of us that fights against our labors to live unrighteously. And so God's people must pray for the Lord's will to be done on earth. We must pray for the day when everything in heaven and everything on earth is united fully and completely in Christ. For the day when God eliminates the divide between the earthly and the heavenly in Christ, we await and pray for the day when the eternal kingdom is fully realized. We await and we pray for the day. We await and we pray for that voice from the throne of God to loudly and wonderfully declare what we see in Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The Lord will one day live among his people. This is where history is headed. And God's will shall be done. And so we pray in the here and now, expectantly, longingly for that day. One commentator calls this position calls this petition the restless longing of the renewed soul put into words. To see the whole inhabited earth in full conformity to the will of God. And this will come to pass ultimately when the, at the arrival of the new heavens and the new earth in the eternal kingdom. And so as we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray in a long line of people from the Old Testament to the New who have consistently prayed and longed for this day. We pray along with the psalmists who said in Psalm chapter 7, verse 9, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. 
We pray along with the psalmist in Psalm 72, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be full or filled with his glory. And as we pray for this full arrival, as we pray for God's will to be done on earth, as a future event that takes place in its totality, when we pray this prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're also at this moment praying for the Lord to increasingly align us as individuals with his will as well. Anyone who loves the Lord wants more than anything to be fully obedient to him, right? It's a war that goes on inside of us. Internally, we want to love God. We want to be in full and perfect alignment with his will. But there is this part of us that continues to fight against that. And so one commentator states, in reference to this, he said, in praying this, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we invite God to conquer us. And that's why this petition is so scary. When we pray this prayer, we are asking God to do what is necessary to make His will prevail in our lives. And, when, and, then, and God then comes with gracious, kind violence to root out all impediments to our obedience. To pray this prayer may terrify us, but it will also deliver us from ourselves. It can be truly said that we have not learned to pray at all until every request in our prayers is made subject to this one. Your will be done. It is this petition that determines the authenticity of our other petitions. For if we do not mean it, then we cannot truly pray, hallowed be your name or your kingdom come. So truly praying your will be done is fundamental to all true prayer. And still another, the great commentator Matthew Henry, uh, speaking to this petition, uh, prayed. And he prayed this, Lord, enable me to do what is pleasing to thee. Give me that grace that is necessary to the right knowledge of thy will with an acceptable obedience to it. Let thy will be done conscientiously by me and by others. Not our own will, not the will of the flesh, not the will of the mind, not the will of men, much less Satan's will, that we may neither displease God in anything we do nor be displeased in anything God does. This is what we pray for when we petition the Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are praying that God, by his grace, would bring us to know, to more fully obey and submit to his revealed will in all things, joyfully, completely, and fully, as the angels do in heaven and as our departed saints do in heaven. We need this prayer we require the Spirit's help as we pray this prayer because left to ourselves, we will not do God's will. We've never done God's will on our own. God's will is not done on earth as it is in heaven without the Spirit living in us. And this is evidenced by a continued history of disobedience to God's revealed will on earth. 
I'm going to walk you through a history of humanity according to the Bible and different stages and phases of our existence and reveal, hopefully, the truth of this claim that God's will, without His Spirit, is never done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, if you just look at the earth today, it doesn't seem very heavenly, does it? Whatever news outlet you choose to watch, if any, you don't have to tune into that news outlet for long before the corruption of the world is brought out to the forefront, brought right before your eyes, confirming all the all-pervasive truth that, the things, that things in this world, they are rough. Our societies are full of underhanded, deceptive, shameful, villainous institutions and individuals. Our societies are characterized by people, and sometimes we are included in this, of people willing to harm, to hurt, to cheat, to steal, to abuse, to slander, to bear false witness against others who get in the way of our ideas, who get in the way of our views, who get in the way of our quality of life. This does not look like God's will as it is done in heaven, does it? But it all started off well enough, didn't it? When God created the earth and everything in it, and he formed Adam from the dust of the ground and Eve from one of Adam's ribs, and they lived in the most wonderful of circumstances. They were innocent. They were free from sin. They were surrounded by the blessings of God. The ground produced their food both freely and richly, and the animals even lived in harmony with the humans, with Adam and Eve, without any fear. The Lord provided Adam and Eve with the most wonderful mandate also to be fruitful and multiply. And he gave them dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every other living thing on earth. And not only that, but the Lord provided for them every green plant along with a multitude of fruit from those trees for fruit, for food. Adam and Eve, they truly did live the blessed life. Adam and Eve truly had the unfettered, unhindered blessing of a free will. And they were holy. And they were happy. And they truly reflected the image of God. And given all that the Lord had blessed Adam and Eve with, given all the dominion, given their dominion over the earth and everything in it, setting them in a paradise that was the Garden of Eden, the Lord in his wisdom kept from them a single tree. Some have asked, Why would God do that? Why would God put a tree in the garden and then keep that tree from them? To that I answer, as a reminder, as a visible testimony to Adam and Eve that while they were given the task of ruling over the earth, of dominion over the earth, they must always remember that there is still one who rules over them, one to whom everything truly belongs. That God is their creator. God is the one to whom all things are, all is due. 
And so while Adam and Eve might fulfill their role as leaders in creation, they were never to forget their relationship to, to and with God as subservient to and honoring Him as supreme over them. And so the Lord commanded Adam, saying in Genesis chapter 2, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. For a time, we don't know exactly how long, it could be an hour, could be a day, could be a month, but Adam and Eve didn't eat from the forbidden tree. Forbidden tree. But how long would this state of affairs last? Would people, Adam and Eve, under the most favorable of circumstances, obey the command and the voice of the Lord? Would they do the will of God on earth? The answer, no. Everything changed on the day when the serpent convinced Eve that being subject to God was not good enough. She ought to strive for more. She ought to strive to be like God. And so she took the fruit from the forbidden tree and she gave some to her husband Adam and both proceeded to abuse the freedom of their will. And the result of this abuse? The enslavement of our wills and the loss of freedom. Even in humanity's easiest, most blessed, most free state, even in our state of innocence, <clears throat> we chose, we chose to violate God's will rather than obey it. We chose our will over God's will. And this has resulted in the world that we see today. But glory be to God. While he did expel Adam and Eve from the garden, he showed them mercy, not wiping out the human race before it could ever begin, but instead promising a Redeemer who would come to eventually solve the problem that they had created. And that Redeemer's name we know as our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and from that point, humanity entered into a new phase, a time before God called Abram and make promises to him, a time before God gave the law to the Israelites. This was a time of conscience. There was no revealed will, per se, given to the world, but there was a conscience in humanity. We wouldn't follow God under, the, in the, uh, uh, under our innocence in the garden, but would we do God's will based on some sort of internal sense of him? Would we live by his will would we live out his will by following what could be known of him through our conscience? Would the Lord's will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Again, the answer is no. After being expelled from the garden, humanity began to multiply on the earth. And Genesis 6-5 tells us, that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. <clears throat> what does that mean? And the Apostle Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans, in chapter 1, verse 18 to 32, that during this time of conscience, a time that would extend throughout the Gentile world for quite a while until the gospel of Jesus Christ came to us, <clears throat> God made certain aspects of his 
person and attributes known to humanity through creation. Two are specifically revealed in uh, Romans chapter 1, that he is eternal in power and divine in nature. Two attributes that the Apostle Paul said are, both are, and have been clearly perceived in the creation ever since the world was made. These are so clearly revealed, declares the Apostle Paul, in what has been made that humanity everywhere is without excuse. In that while they know that such a God exists, they refused, we, humanity, refused to honor Him as God. We refused to give thanks to Him for His innumerable blessings. The rain, for example, the harvests, feeding us, clothing us. Instead, we suppressed what God had revealed in nature about Himself in favor of our unrighteousness. Humanity suppressed the knowledge of God so that they could pursue ungodliness. And the reason for such a response to God as he revealed himself in creation, the reason for the suppression of the knowledge rather than the the, the seeking after it, humanity is more committed to the exaltation of self, to creating gods and religious systems that tend to reflect our own deep-seated desires and passions than we are seeking the God who truly exists. You see, the God who exists is eternal and power and divine in nature. What that means is he is not a God who conforms to us and our whims. He does not adjust himself or change himself to fit our fancies. He is the God who is, who exists, and to whom we must submit the totality of our lives. We must hand the reins over to him as Lord and Sovereign. This type of God is one that humanity cannot accept. And so throughout history, humanity has sought to ignore him, forget him, and suppress him. And as a result of this suppression of what could be known about God, the consistent constant and predictable consequence of suppressing the knowledge of God is that humanity became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, meaning they understood nothing correctly. And this led to our being carried by our own passions, carried by our own lusts into ever-increasing delusion, depravity, and unrighteousness ever-increasing disobedience, and all the while, as we slipped deeper into impurity and dishonor, we claimed to be wise. We are so smart, aren't we? We are simply duped and deceived. This complete disregard and suppression of the one true God by human conscience in the face of such clear evidence in creation and the commitment to continual wicked thoughts and intentions, this complete corruption and violence that characterized humanity led the Lord to flood the earth. He could have made us extinct at this very moment. He could have taken us all out 
But again, in God's grace and in his mercy, he saved one family out of all the earth, the family of Noah. Genesis tells us that he was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, a man who walked with God. And so we see, when we were led by our consciences, we chose our will over God's. We suppressed the knowledge of God in favor of our own will. God's will uh, was not done on earth as it is in heaven. And so humanity once again entered into a new phase. We've gone through innocence. We would not do God's will in our innocence in Eden. We would not do God's will when we were led by our conscience. And here humanity enters into a new phase as God gives the, the family of righteous and blameless Noah a new start on the earth. Perhaps... Maybe now we would do God's will as the flood subsided and Noah's family left the ark and God once again, as he had with Adam and Eve, commanded Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Only this time, as a result of sin's corrupting of creation, the animal world would fear and dread humanity. And God gave every moving thing into our hand as food for us, as Genesis 9.3 says, which was different than during the time in the garden. And God made a covenant with creation, promising never again to flood the world in order to destroy all life on it. And the sign of the covenant, it's the bow in the sky, the clouds, the bow in the clouds, the rainbow. That's our sign, by the way. That's our flag. It doesn't belong to anyone else. The flag, the rainbow, it's ours. So God made a covenant with Noah. So far, so good. Would things be different this time? Would we do God's will on earth when given a fresh start? The answer, once again, sadly, is no. Noah's son Ham disrespected his father and Noah in turn cursed his son and relational strife began almost immediately and it became the norm once again. Until, that is, the people gathered together in the land of Shinar and said to one another in Genesis chapter 11, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, let me ask you a question. For what purpose do you think they were laboring to build such a structure? For what reason do you think they would want to build a tower that could have its head up into the heavens? You see, whereas Eve wanted to be like God, the peoples building the temple hoped to bring the tops of the, te- the, of the tower into the heavens so that they could storm the heavens and eliminate God completely. Whereas humanity in earlier stages sought to suppress the knowledge of God, these builders wanted the top of the tower to reach the heavens themselves so that they might take it over. And by so doing, make a name for themselves by abolishing and eradicating and tearing down the name of God among men. But God, being eternal in power and divine in nature, put an end to their efforts as he confused their language. 
and he dispersed them from Shinar all over the face of the earth, Genesis 11.8 tells us. This is the exact opposite of doing God's will on earth as it is done in heaven. This is the aim of idolatry, to eliminate God and his will altogether so our will is done on earth and in heaven. So when given a new and fresh start, once again, humanity chose our own will over God's will and did not do his will on earth as it is done in heaven. So we see, when in a state of innocence, we did not do God's will on earth. When in a time of conscience, we did not do God's will on earth. When we were given a fresh start, we did not do God's will on earth as it is done in heaven. Perhaps, maybe, if God chose a family and made a variety of promises to that family, promises of good and promises of blessing to them, maybe, maybe, things might change. Maybe this family, out of all the families in the world, maybe they would try to do God's will on earth. And so God called out to Abram in Genesis 12, saying this, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Lord made promises to Abram. Promises of land. Promises of offspring. Protection. And his presence among them. Now, would such promises lead Abraham's descendants to do his will on earth as it is done in heaven? You are, by now, you probably know the answer. No. As this family lies and cheats and lacks faith, one of Judah's sons, which is one of Abram's descendants, Judah is one of the more important of the twelve, one of the ones we hear about a little bit more, One of Judah's sons refused, as Genesis 38 tells us, to perform the duty of a brother-in-law and raise up offspring for the house of his brother. That doesn't seem like a huge deal for us, but in this day, this was a grievous and wicked act. And the Lord put this son of Judah to death as a result. And Judah himself, one of the offspring of Abraham, visited what he thought were prostitutes at local Canaanite temples. But the most wicked act of Abraham's offspring was when the 11 brothers, there were 12 brothers and 11 of them got together in a jealous rage against their youngest brother, a a young boy named Joseph. And they debated whether or not to kill him. And as Joseph approached his brothers in the field, they said to one another, the 11 brothers said to one another, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we'll say that a fierce animal devoured him. We'll go back to our dad and we'll tell him he was killed by some fierce animal. And it was only because one brother, Reuben, spoke up that Joseph wasn't killed. Instead, they threw Joseph into a pit, a pit that he couldn't get out of, while they went and sat down to eat their lunch. 
As Joseph languished in a pit, they took their sandwiches out of their sandwich bags and ate. And as they ate, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelite traders, and they said to each other, well, you know what, if we kill our brother, that's no profit to us. What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And in their jealousy, they sold their brother Joseph to the Ishmaelites, who in turn sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt. Would the vast array of precious and wonderful promises to Abraham Promises that he would have spoken to every one of his descendants. Promises that would have made their way down the line. Promises that God himself reiterated to this family. Would these promises lead this family to do God's will as it is done in heaven? The answer is no. And again, however, the God that we serve the God that we have dedicated our lives to, the God that we come to in faith through Jesus Christ is merciful and he remains faithful to his promises even as this family failed to honor him properly. And he continued to work in, with, and through this wayward, disobedient, and stubborn group. So we see, right, in a state of innocence, the most favorable of circumstances, we did not do God's will. We disobeyed. In the time of conscience, from the times of Genesis and even up to our own day in some areas of the world, we do not do the will of God as as it is in heaven. When we were given a fresh start with the family of Noah, the righteous family of Noah's, we did not do God's will as it is done in heaven. When God made his promises to this family and with such hope and consolation held out to the people these wonderful promises, they did not do God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Perhaps then, if God were to lead his people into a precious promised land, if he were to lead them out by mighty acts of power from their enslavement in Egypt and into a promised land and give them a clear and specific law by which to live obedient lives, maybe then, maybe then, God's will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the Lord delivered his people Israel from enslavement in Egypt And he revealed his unparalleled and unchallengeable power in ten strikes against Egypt. And he protected the people of Israel as they fled from Egypt. He protected them from the rear by a pillar of fire. And he, from from Egypt's oncoming military, and he protected them in the front as he parted the Red Sea and led them through only to close that same sea upon Egypt's military as they ran through the sea in order to catch these fleeing Israelites. And the Lord killed the entire Egyptian army. And after that, as the Israelites found themselves in the wilderness, the Lord in his providing mercy gave them bread from heaven in the wilderness to feed them. He gave them quail to feed them. He provided water from the rock to quench their thirst. 
And he led them to victories against armies who sought to crush them while they were in the wilderness. And after all of this, the Lord descended on Mount Sinai in fire, wrapping it in smoke and causing it to tremble. As the people met their God at this mountain, he gave them the law, a set of specific commands to follow and a sacrificial system to ensure that when they failed to obey, they could appease God and atone for their failure, for their disobedience. And look, sometimes we tend to think that this law is a burden. Far from being a burden at this time, this was a tremendous blessing to and for the people of Israel. Think about it. The peoples all around Israel worshipped gods of their making. However, they never quite knew if those gods were appeased or satisfied by their efforts. How could someone know if the offerings they've made to their gods are enough? When, the, when, a, when, when someone planted a crop and offered to their god a portion of that crop, how could they know if that was enough for that god? When the next season's crop sprouted, if it yielded less than the previous year, what's the logical conclusion? I must not have offered enough. I had better offer more. However, if the crop was full and bountiful, the logical conclusion is I have more. I had better offer more. So either way, you were offering more. And this cycle of more, 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 more led to this wicked practice of sacrificing their children as they gave to their gods that which was at the pinnacle of what they could offer. It is this lack of clarity in the surrounding nations that led them to sacrifice their children in hopes and efforts to gain the favor of their gods. They never knew if they had their gods' attention even. You remember when Elijah was battling with the priests of Baal in Baal in, in 1 Kings 17 in one of the greatest texts in all of the Bible as he mocks their gods. He said, they said, let's cut ourselves and let's scream all morning as they were cutting and screaming and their God never answered. Well, we know why. it's because there is no, they don't exist. But Elijah looks at them and said, maybe your gods are gone on a journey. Maybe your God's asleep. Maybe your God is in the bathroom. And the people that, of those days, that was a legitimate concern for them. That was, what they, that was what they believed. They never knew. But Israel, but Israel's God, but the God who exists, the one true God, gave to them, set forth for them a law, and made everything crystal clear. When you fall short, offer this or that offering, and if you are careful to obey these laws, I will remain among you. I will dwell with you as your God. You will be my people. This was a liberating gift of God. What nation had a God so close to them that would give them such a holy and wonderful and crystal clear law as the God of Israel gave to Israel? There wasn't any. And so here's the law given. Would they obey? Would they do God's will? Would God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Would they be careful to follow everything that he had commanded them? And the answer, no. 
this people immediately broke God's commandments. They did so while Moses was still up on Mount Sinai receiving them. Exodus 20 verse 4 said, The Lord said, You shall not make for yourself a carved image. The Lord commanded this because nothing in heaven, nothing on earth, no image anywhere can ever properly image or reflect the fullness of God except for Jesus Christ who is the image of God. But the Israelites, while Moses was still up on the mountain, made for themselves an image. They wanted to put Yahweh the Lord into an image and the best that they could come up with? A cow. You know, cows lick inside their nose. They're not a wonderful animal. They, they brought God's image down or they, they tried to make a calf and then they, this golden calf, and then they declared in Exodus 32, verse 4, these are your gods, O Israel. These are the gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The best they could come up with to represent Yahweh was a cow. And they worshipped it. And Exodus 32 tells us they sacrificed to it. And from that point on, the peoples consistently disobeyed the law of God. I mean, there were periods of time when a good king would arise and they would do better. But for the most part, they consistently disobeyed the law of God. They repeatedly turned to other gods. They repeatedly committed the wicked and heinous sin of idolatry. The life of Israel from the giving of the law to their exile was characterized by disobedience as they, like the Gentiles, suppressed and ignored what they knew about God. They proved to be liars, thieves, murderers, idolaters. But unlike the Gentiles, who sinned against conscience, the Israelites sinned bold-faced against the clear word of God. And once again, the will of God was not done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the geography might change. The situations might be different. The people might be different. But the same result consistently ensued. Instead of obedience to God's will, we are prone to disobey. In every circumstance, humanity has disobeyed. In every period, We have disobeyed and sinned against God and are therefore, all of us, under his just condemnation and wrath. And there is only one way to be set free from this. Only one way to be delivered from this wrath, from this justice, from the penalties of sin. Only one way to be saved, and that is by grace through faith in Jesus. God who has come to us in the flesh to solve our great problem. Scripture tells us that everyone, all who cry out to Jesus in faith, all who truly believe in Him, who, all who know Him as Lord and Savior, for every single person that truly calls out to Christ and says, Save me, you are saved. You are brought into a right relationship with God as a result. You are adopted in to the family of God. And this because Christ meets all the demands of the law. Only Christ has ever obeyed God's law 
perfectly. Only Christ has truly done God's will on earth as it is done in heaven. And when we come to Jesus in faith, this perfect, righteous, law-fulfilling life that Jesus lived is credited to our account. It is given to us. So when God looks at us, he sees in us the perfection of Christ. This is what the Bible means when it says we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. It means that we are fully righteous. We are spiritually perfect. We are completely holy in God's sight. That's on the grand spiritual level, but if you're anything like me, you know that on the ground level, things feel a lot different at times. While we are in the position of perfect holiness in the sight of God through faith in Christ, as we live in the world, we, as we battle, as we live here on earth, we are still engaged in and still fighting a constant battle for increasing holiness and increasing obedience to God's will. A battle put into words by Paul, the Apostle Paul. A battle that I have had people quote to me who have never read this text of Scripture because it is so everywhere. Everyone who loves Christ and wants to live a holy life, whether you've read Romans 7 or not, know instinctively what Paul is saying here. We know it by experience. Listen to what Paul said. I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh because for I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Wretched man that I am. You see, even for those of us who believe in Christ, who have given ourselves to Christ, who strive and fight and struggle and labor for holiness and obedience, it is only with great difficulty that we do so. This, however, is the great difference between all that came before. The vast majority of mankind has never desired a life of complete and total obedience to Jesus or the Lord. Paul's internal conflict is only brought about, your internal conflict is only brought about because you are saved. Because you want nothing more than God's will done in your own life. Because you want nothing more than to see God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. See, the unsaved, they endure no such conflict. The conflict begins when somebody's soul is renewed by the Holy Spirit. While the soul is renewed, while we are internally renewed, while we are given new hearts, our external bodies remain unrenewed. The Bible calls this the flesh. This is why we await the day, and the Bible makes such a big deal about the day when we receive our new glorified bodies. New glorified bodies that align perfectly with our renewed soul. But until that day, here we are. This combination of unrenewed flesh and perfectly renewed souls 
and the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit desires what is contrary to the flesh, and there is a war. And the spirit wants perfect obedience to God's will. And the flesh wants what is opposite. And because of this, the Apostle Paul can write in Romans 7, I find it to be a law. It is so common, says Paul, that I find this to be a general principle. I find it to be something so common. And what is it that he finds common? That when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. See, Paul's saying, I want to follow God's law. I want from the depths of my soul to do his will. But in every effort, in all of my efforts to do so, evil and disobedience and the pull of the flesh, it's always right there. Waging war against my desire to do what is good and right. It's always crouching at the door ready to pounce. Always prowling around seeking to devour me. And I give in to the evil that I don't want to do way more often than I'd like to admit. Even now, the revealed will and commandments of God are not fully done on earth as it is in heaven. And again, you contrast this with the angels standing at the ready to perform God's will without hesitation, fully, completely, joyfully. We contrast our state with the souls of the saints who praise and honor and exalt God to their unhindered and maximal joy and delight. Oh, what an existence, right? Oh, what an existence. Oh, that God's revealed will would be perfectly lived out on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what we pray for when we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We petition the Lord We plead with the Lord on an individual level to conform us in ever-increasing measure while we live here on earth between the time of our new birth and the time of our death to grow us up and conform us in ever-increasing measure into the image of Jesus Christ. And we await God's promise of 2 Peter 3 a new heavens, new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. But also, not just individually, we also pray in totality. When we pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is done in heaven, we are pleading with the Lord to fulfill the promises that he made through the prophet Isaiah, for example, in chapter 65, when he said, I Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. We pray for the Lord when we say, Lord, your, king, uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are praying for the Lord to make the vision he showed John in Revelation the reality. We know it's coming, but Lord, hasten the day. John wrote this in chapter 22. The angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. 
Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. Amen. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord their God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. O Lord, hasten the day when your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. I want this. So as we've worked through the first three petitions, we were exhorted to pray in the first one of this set for the Lord to exalt his name. Hallowed be your name. Exalt your name far above any and all other names. And we pray and petition for the Lord to bring about his kingdom as Christ reigns from Jerusalem, fulfilling all the promises of God to Israel and blessing the entire world as a result of Israel's salvation. And here, we pray for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for the abolishment of every level of opposition. We pray for the destruction of every stronghold that is set up on this planet to his will, in all of creation, to his will. We pray for the day when God is all in all. We pray that righteousness is increased. We pray that people come to repentance. We pray that people see and come to Jesus by, uh, by grace through faith. We pray that people would continue, that God's church would continue to batter down the gates of hell. We pray ultimately that his will would be done everywhere in all of creation, joyfully, completely, fully, and without hesitation. O precious Lord, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.